Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Interchange was founded inside of Bond, the embedded finance company. This podcast is a place for conversation, questioning, and open learning about the future of embedded finance. Our guest today is Ritiman Das, CEO at Triple Blind. Triple Blind provides enterprise data privacy as a service. You can think of them as the HTTPS of private data sharing. This is a somewhat new concept in the world of technology and definitely in the world of financial technology. And I promise we'll explore exactly what it all means during the conversation. We also cover Dawes' background from his last company, Zolos, that was acquired by Ant Financial, how he came up with the idea for Triple Blind based on his time as a VC at Ant, and what the future holds for privacy and financial services. I hope you enjoy our interchange. So take us to iVerify. We took something that in 2008 existed as a digital camera, the most expensive one you can buy and the most expensive CPU you can buy, working together over two hours to verify the identity of a person. Whereas it was unbelievable to me that in 2012, it was running in 300 milliseconds on the front-facing camera of a smartphone, right? And we were pioneers in that. And the the vision was people will want to use biometrics on the mobile phone, right? And, and the, this is a totally different time frame. Because if you remember the HP laptops that had fingerprint scanners at that time, you had to swipe, right? It was not right. something like this where you just, yeah. today you just place it there and it yeah. just works, right? And they weren't too consistent. They weren't consistent. They yeah. weren't uh, right. nearly reliable. Right. All you could use them to is log into Windows. No, no real services used it, right? right. And so I verify with was was in 2011 and 12 really forward thinking for the time right the only other biometrics company that had ever worked on mobile was authentic uh, which did by a fingerprint scanning based on on a screen without requiring swipe and apple had promptly brought, bought them right? right so we knew that there was going to be something that apple was going to do at some point or the other but it wasn't a clearly defined need of the market. How did you get to the eye piece? The reason why I verify used the red uh, blood vessels and the white part of the eye, this mm. ocular uh, ocular blood vein patterns is for a couple of reasons. One, it's non-genetic, right? So you can actually differentiate between twins, unlike a face. Two, the eyes are a very stable feature. They don't really grow and shift and morph unless you get injured, obviously, um, as you age. Unlike a face where it may change or um, or a fingerprint that may be scrubbed, yeah. it's a very stable feature. What about death? That is where liveness came in. So we, we clearly, death is... is Kind of an interesting, extreme example, but yeah. we had and to protect I asked against. It as if it was just a just a passing question, right? What about if you know your life ends? You're right, but <laughs> it, it, the more realistic scenario was someone using a picture to try ah, to verify. Okay, and we had sure. a very a sophisticated set of very advanced liveness detection algorithms to try to detect if the person or if the image that the camera was seeing was live versus not. Gotcha. Right, and we were very very advanced in 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 that, and we had a sort of we were leading the industry in that. So to go back to why, why eyes, so yeah. clearly, you know, those things, non-genetic, stable feature. Um, and, the, and, and then the, the most important piece was it's the most accurate biometric that does not require any extra heart. Mm. Fingerprints require the capacitive touch sensor. Right. Iris requires an IR light, yeah. facial, 
recognition. Even today, Face ID requires Apple to have that special sensor, whereas we wanted to democratize biometrics and bring it to anybody that had a front-facing camera or a back-facing camera, right? <laughs> so you needed no special hardware, and you could have a software-only biometric without needing any dependency from any hardware uh, sensor. So that was that was the unique feature which enabled us to then you know support hundreds of phones coming out in the time period of a year because all we had to do was tune to the camera parameters. We didn't have to build a new sensor, right? Uh, figure out how to how to integrate into hardware and all those kinds of things, right? And we did the Wells accelerator, and we really that was very important for us because we really understood the process of how a bank adopts new technology. Mm-hmm. Right. And Wells, uh, through that, was our first commercial implementation of implementing biometric at the app level. Right. So the Wells yeah. CEO app was where we were integrated, which the uh, small to medium business uh, app that and clearly that needs to be really secure. And we were a way to secure that uh, that the transactions made on that app, as well as the logging in into that app. Yeah. Um, while requiring no extra hardware and enabling anybody with a smartphone to be able to have a secure authentication experience. I think there's an overgeneralization of big bank accelerators and the perspective that they are maybe a waste of time. And in a lot of cases, I think that's not true. And I think you guys are you, you guys, you guys in the past, I verify were a really good example of that not being true. Was there anything that you learned that you would advise other founders? We learned we were not banking and financial services expert, right? We, we were biometrics experts and we had done device work. We had done step up authentication work. So we knew those things and, but not how they applied to a bank and how would the bank decide to buy? Yeah. Right. Were you, were you open about that? Like, did you kind of lead with, we don't know, teach us, or did you think uh, until you make it? Well, how, since, how they, do that? <laughs> well since they participated in our, in our financing, this sort of came as a package deal as part of that. Right. And see what we learn and, that was another inflection point for for iVerify because once we were live in production with Wells, selling to every other bank was was really yeah first much time easier. In the two years since, we went from one bank to well over fifty, right, mm-hmm. of all different sizes and shapes, credit unions uh, to ABN Amro to DBS and HSBC, right? Yep, and that was sort of when we knew we had a legit product that that banks and financial services wanted and could use and and provided value. And serendipitously, that's when we saw Alibaba was doing a lot in the biometrics space, right? I think we saw Jack Ma talk about how financial inclusion of the next billion people we're going to be enabled by biometrics, right? Hmm. Okay. Because, you know, you've got semi-literate to literate people that may not know uh, how money living on your app is going to be secure and safe to transact with. Yeah. And they were essentially leapfrogging the other payment systems we saw in the Western world, right? Mm-hmm. Credit cards had never taken off. So Alipay and WeChat were sort of the de facto uh, ways to go from keeping money under your mattress to keeping it in some modern financial institution. Yeah. And that was when we started uh, working with Alipay as a customer, right? We did pilots with them. They liked it. And that was around the time we were also raising our Series B. And we had had some discussions about potentially Alipay participating in that. But that was when they decided that instead of investing in iVerify, it was better as an acquisition. And then 
it was like you started wearing a Patagonia vest and <laughs> running around and talking to people about deal terms and valuations. Tell me, tell me about your time as a VC. And like, wow, yeah. and did you want to do that? Was that like the obvious next thing that you wanted to understand? Right after the exit, I spent a year in growth and product mode, right? We rolled it out in several countries, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Thailand, Malaysia, yeah. Philippines, all over. And you had right? platinum on United for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a a lot of travel. It, I got yeah. to a point where I was sleeping better on the plane than in my own bed. The the thing that's my biggest strength and my biggest weakness is my curiosity. Right? <laughs> there are things I have done just to explore my curiosity and I needed to experience it firsthand as yeah. opposed to getting a secondhand account of what it's like. Right. So that is sort of the happy circumstances that led to the VC role. Ant had just done a Series C and Series C for Ant was $14 billion at $150 billion, Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember that. I remember that because that was the year that everybody was like, oh, you wouldn't believe the money. You wouldn't believe the VC dollars going into fintech. Right. And then you take out Ant and it's like plus 2%. It's like basically nothing. Right. Like no dramatic, like definitely not an exponential increase. But right. if you put the Ant number in, exponential increase right. and then some. Yeah. That and was, so that was, that was a big raise. That was the Series C? Yeah, it was Series C oh, for Ant. God. Yeah. Ugh. What a world. China is a whole different animal, right? Very much so. And we were the only American company that had bought it. There was a kind of fork in the road moment there where you were kind of considering starting something, maybe considering something else, this, the other. So how did, how, how did we get to triple blind? Challenge we faced that I verify after the exit was all of the data we needed to fine tune our systems to a local country, to a local population was subject to privacy regulation, right? And people's eyes look different and, you know, Chinese eyes and Indian eyes and Laotian eyes and Indonesian eyes looked different. And we needed to work on reducing our false negative rate, right? Because clearly we had used a lot of, it was AI and machine learning and statistical matching based algorithms. So we were trained on a certain set of eyes that are our system saw. We had a team in Kansas City building a biometric system used in all these uh, other countries in in Asia and Latin America and in uh, in Africa and Europe. But we couldn't ever get any of that data back to Kansas City to be able to just run a neural network fine tuning algorithm. That was my first experience, if you will, viscerally firsthand with with privacy. And Ant had this issue on steroids, right? I was clearly trying to invest in what is now triple blind uh, when I was at Ant in my VC role, right? Ant was through Techfin enabling wallets and financial services companies and fintechs all around the world to be able to have a better fraud detection system, a lower payment rejection rate, a better anti-money laundering system, a better anti-terrorist funding system, or even brokering KYC between countries. And all of those ran into data sharing issues because they were regulated PII. And a lot of countries were were passing national privacy regulation at the highest levels of government. And a lot of them looked like what is now called data localization or data residency, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning data, PII, PHI, personal financial information generated from citizens of a particular country need to stay physically resident in that country at all times, right? So that 
really hindered our ability to to be able to service those local populations with the latest and greatest. The systems weren't learning from each other and getting better, right? Yeah. So if you learned of a new fraud vector in a, in a different country, that wasn't informing your uh, fraud systems in a different country, right? Yeah, it's it's a money launderer's dream. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was when I was in an investments role and the, the, I was living in Tel Aviv at the time. And I looked at the market and what I understood was everybody that's working on privacy we're going after something called confidential compute, which is an ability to, in a public cloud, you may have a scenario where one or more companies are sharing the same physical hardware, right? That's just what a public cloud is. Right, yeah. Let's imagine a scenario where JP Morgan Chase and someone else is using the same systems. JP Morgan Chase clearly has a need to keep its data and algorithms safe from other parties that have access to the same physical hardware, right? They might be snooping around. They might be looking at what's going on there. So if you're leveraging a public cloud, you need confidential compute. You need to be able to confidentially operate on your business information without revealing to others who are renting the same physical box from the same cloud provider, and you don't want to reveal anything to them. But that doesn't solve a problem of privacy where I can't access this data because it is regulated a different way. Right. And I can't bring it over. Like a CYA solution. It covers their ass, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. Right. So... Confidential compute is great and is important and necessary, but it doesn't solve the business issue when regulations are the terms of the deal that I have with whoever's uh, sharing, I'm sharing data with or I'm receiving data from, uh, need the data to be treated a certain way, right? So that is sort of what was the genesis of Trouble Plane. How do you leverage data while still enforcing data residency and any other data privacy regulation while still utilizing the data for its legal and to its fullest extent possible. Yeah, it's a really good way of painting the upside, but also the downside limitation. I mean, what what is the stat? It's like 99% of money laundering still goes uncaught and un, unseen kind of in our current state of affairs. And this could solve money laundering and this could be a solution in the AML world. There is no other solution. Like everything you're talking about, all these data lakes, the silos, everything else is like, it's just a gangster's dream. Right. You know? And, and I think... You know, IPM has a statistic I like around 93% of enterprise data goes underutilized. Historically, we've only ever used first party data, right? I want to build IM Bank A and I want to build a credit card fraud detection algorithm. I'm going to use my own data to create this credit card fraud detection algorithm. Yep. But what that misses is nobody banks at just one bank, right? right? I may have a credit card from one financial institution. I may have a checking account at a different one. I may have a mortgage at a different one. Right. And so in those cases, you're actually better off using third-party data in addition to first-party data. So you get a more complete view of the consumer and are able to better decide where a fraudulent transaction might happen or where a money laundering transaction may be happening, right? So the more variables you're able to use and the more data you're able to use, the better your models are, right? Yeah. And triple blind is on a mission to enable every institution to be able to leverage third-party data while still enforcing the regulations and business terms that govern that data without introducing any additional risk or liability for the receiver or the sender. That paints a very clear picture of like how it helps the individual be protected and to some degree how it helps the corporation in a kind of liability minimization and also the upside of being able to understand, being able to take in more data, right, Mm -hmm. and be able to feel safe about it. But the other piece that I always find incredibly fascinating about Triple Blind is the way that it actually protects the IP of the algorithm. Yeah. 
So explain that. Talk about esoteric technology, but this is this actually is technology that has uh, real commercial utility. Well, so, that's that's the thing about all of it. I mean, when you start when you explained it to me the first time, I number one said, "Okay, wait, say everything you just said again." And then after you said it again, I was like, "Oh, you're unlocking data that." would never have the ability to cross these borders, right? That in and of itself, I think is world changing. But the idea that all of these algorithms and all of this IP that's been developed could actually go outside of those walls as well and have safety associated with like, it actually could change the world. When an algorithm operates on data in a local machine, it's a visible transaction, right? The algorithm sees the data, the data sees the algorithm. Yeah. And we're all happy and we do our business. But there are certain cases where the algorithm is either so neat is, is so sensitive because millions or even potentially in certain cases, billions of dollars have been invested in the invention of the algorithm. And second, it may be an AI algorithm on which lots and lots of sensitive training data was used. Right. And you don't ever want to run it risk of having the training data be revealed, right? Algorithms on their own as just, if I just give you trained deep neural network, you can just look at how I built neural network. You can run all kinds of nefarious processes on it to try to determine was DOS's data in this database. And if so, hmm. let's try to regenerate it, right? In healthcare, it's a big deal because for every patient whose data is reconstructed, even from a trained algorithm, it's a $50,000 fine under HIPAA, right? Oof. In the United States. Um, while AI in healthcare, AI in financial services is great, some of that innovation has failed to completely capitalize on the market potential because of sensitivity around, is my IP safe or is my model going to leak any of the training data that was used? We invented a concept called encrypted algorithms. So it's essentially the genesis of the name triple blind, where the algorithm gets encrypted. What that does is it keeps the IP in that algorithm safe from being revealed to the data owner. It keeps the training data, use the algorithm, if it's an AI algorithm, safe from being ever regenerated. The algorithm, when it's working on data, the data also stays encrypted. Mm -hmm. And the novelty of the encryption there is it's impossible to decrypt. There is no decryption key. Even with quantum computers working for decades, you would never be able to reconstruct that original data. We've actually got a mathematical proof for anybody interested. So therefore, you can have these kinds of transactions where an encrypted algorithm meets encrypted data and they produce the right answer without either side learning anything about each other, right? And obviously, the algorithm, therefore, has no risk of getting replicated by the licensee of the algorithm. The data owner takes no risk of the data potentially leaking. Uh, and this is actually compliant around the world. So imagine a scenario where I build an algorithm and I am serving it out of a public cloud. Let's say I want to serve this anti-money laundering algorithm to a bank in the Philippines, right? The challenge I have is, let's say I'm using AWS or Google Cloud or any of the other cloud vendors, they may not have data centers in the Philippines. The Philippine consumer data that I need in my algorithm to be able to determine if, an, if a transaction is fraud can't come to me because it is subject to data residency rules. But I've got this wonderful algorithm, right? So triple blind, because it can keep the data encrypted with essentially a one-way encryption, meaning it can't ever be decrypted. And on the other side, on the algorithm side, the algorithm stays encrypted, can facilitate this exchange to occur because this is compliant with Philippine data residency rules. The encrypted data leaving the border in a way that can never be reconstructed does not violate data residency. In fact, it enforces it. The data never moves. And similarly, now I, as the algorithm owner, we're serving it out of an availability zone in Japan, can actually service the Philippines without needing to set up a local 
data center, right? So the total addressable market for these algorithms is effectively the world because you can enforce privacy of the IP and the training data on the algorithm side and the data it's operating on on the other side. And the reason why we call it triple blind is because triple blind also never has the ability to see the company and the product itself never has the ability to see any of the data or the algorithms used, right? So blind to the data, blind to the algorithm and blind to the result. In my brain, I think of it as leveling the playing field when it comes to so many of the things that matter in society. I think just about everybody listening in some way, shape or form could apply triple blind to their life for the sake of maybe even just like a little commercial. Like what are the industries you're focused on right now? What are the specific use cases in those industries that you want to kind of have conversations with folks about? Sure. So we're the way I would outline our focus today is 50 percent in healthcare and 40% in financial services and 10% enabling AI startups get access to training data. The Hmm. bank or financial services company wants to work with many, many partners. And the longest part in those discussions to work with a third party is the data sharing agreement. How are you going to get access to my data? So triple blind can enable uh, that conversation to grow from six months to two weeks because now that partner is working on real data without ever having the ability to take that data and use it for some other other unauthorized purpose. Even in my few years in specifically in banking, not just fintech, but in banking, it blew my mind the amount of data that is siloed like by floor, even mm-hmm. like when I was at MBKC, very forward thinking tech forward bank, but you have all the mortgage data over here. You have all the kind of deposit data over here. Mm-hmm. They don't really talk to each other. You right. don't even really know if one, if, you know, a deposit customer has a mortgage or if a mortgage, you know, vice versa, any of that. So the low hanging fruit of even KYC, we pretty much just ask like, Hey, have you ever lived at this address? Yeah. And especially a problem in, in emerging markets. Uh, so in, I've worked in countries where typically the standard for KYC is a proof of identity and a proof of address, right? right? But we take the address for granted in Western economies, right? I've seen addresses like 50 meters south of the yeah. yellow water tank. And yeah, the fact that we village. live on streets, we're like, yeah, right. we live on streets and like and there's a number, number and there's a name, right. um, not the rest of the so world. So the proof of address can be the most, one of the most challenging pieces of that. The innovations in, in that part of the world that I'm really excited about is derived credentials, right? Yeah. Someone... KYC is you. And then how do you then borrow and ping off of that KYC to then uh, offer the services to what is what would be called not included in financial services uh, currently people, right? So how do you drive financial inclusion in emerging markets? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the potential to bank the underbank for the sake of humanity. Like the world could be a dramatically different place. And I want to end with the last question, which is kind of twofold. One is just what can the listeners do to help you to help triple blind? And the second piece is if they can help with those things, where can they get in touch with you and how can they learn more about triple blind? Great. Uh, So First off, thanks for having me here. It's an honor. To to the first part of your question, how can how can people help Triple Blind? If you're struggling to get access to data, right? You you know you can do something unique or novel or interesting with the data, and it's you're struggling with where do I start with getting the data? Triple Blind can help. Um, and so please book a demo with us or or write to us. Uh, we're at uh, at Triple Blind AI on on Twitter. And personally, for me to reach me, I am at RDASXY on Twitter and DOS at TripleBlind.ai on my email. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interchange with Ritiman Daz, CEO at TripleBlind. 
Interchange was founded inside a bond to benefit the developers, product owners, and executives at brands working inside the next generation of financial services. We hope that you're learning, enjoying, and maybe even laughing along. We love this world, and we're passionate about every piece of it. Let us know what you'd like to learn more about, who you'd like to hear from, and what's getting you out of bed in the morning in this wild world of fintech. If you'd like to learn more about Bond, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at Zach at Bond.tech. Let's start a conversation. Check out the show notes and the Bond blog for a deeper dive if you're still listening and just can't get enough. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and a rating on your favorite podcast app. Until our next interchange.